They say you should never judge a book by its cover. Well, you also shouldn't judge someone until you know their story. So my wicked awesome sisters and I are coming together to tell ours. Sharing our story isn't an excuse. It's an explanation. And now, Wicked Awesome Sisters Podcast. Last week on Wicked Awesome Sisters. I think what's even harder to recover from is losing a sibling. And I think that no one knows that better than you, Amber. That was and still is probably the hardest thing. Even, I mean, I can talk about it now openly as the years have gone on. This was back in 1997, but I can still remember everything from that day. And now the continuation of our story. So today is the 26th anniversary of my cousin Eric's death. He was murdered. And this is Amber, Echo, and Autumn's brother. Unfortunately, Echo was just a little under a year old when Eric died and Autumn hadn't even been born yet. But Amber and I were very close to Eric. And so we wanted to do a tribute to him and just kind of share the story of what happened because we've mentioned his murder a lot, but we haven't really gone into it. I actually found the District Court of Appeal documents, which was filed on January 14th in 2000. Now, Eric was murdered in 1997. So this is the document um, that I could find that kind of summarized what happened. The thing with this is that, you know, his murder happened so long ago and it was before social media. It was before the internet was super widely popular as it is today. So it's really hard to really dig up Uh, old news articles and stuff, but this is what I found. So I'm going to go ahead and read this and then we'll get into our thoughts on it. Mid-afternoon on March 16th, 1997, 14-year-old Eric Brooks was shot and killed by 76-year-old Stanley Quagan in Quagan's DeLand home. Eric and a friend, 10-year-old John Eidelbach, had been playing nearby and ventured onto Quagan's property, eventually entering Quagan's home through a sliding glass door. Quagan was sitting in a chair in the room entered by the boys, and he stood up and shot Eric, allegedly in self-defense or in the belief that Eric was a burglar. By all accounts, Quagan's property, both inside and out, is cluttered with piles of junk. The land around Quagan's house contains several trailers, old parade floats, which Quagan built, and other items. According to John, he and Eric were playing outdoors while his father worked at a nearby warehouse. They found some wood on Quagan's property, which they were interested in using to build a fort in the woods. They did not take the wood. Rather, they assumed someone lived there and wanted to ask the owner if they could have the wood. The boys entered a few of the trailers in the property without knocking first and picked up a cooler bag, some comic books, and some Pez candy dispensers, planning to ask the owner for permission to take these items. A radio was playing near the woods, not far from a gazebo, which housed a running refrigerator. The refrigerator contained beer and Coca-Cola. The boys took nine Cokes from the refrigerator and put them in the cooler bag, intending to ask whoever lived there if they could have them. John explained that they came upon a blue door, which was held slightly open by a brick or cinder block. Without knocking and without obtaining permission to go inside, they opened the door, pulling it open and sliding the cinder block away, and proceeded down a junk-lined hallway which left just a little enough path to get through. Eric ventured into some of the rooms on the side of the hallway looking for more stuff, but John intended only to ask for the wood and then leave. They reached some dirty sliding glass doors and saw a light on inside. According to John, the light made them believe even more strongly that someone might be there. One of them opened the sliding glass doors again without knocking, and they went inside. The first thing John saw was a light and a whole pile of junk and they could tell that they had entered a house where someone lived. John knew it was wrong to enter someone's house without permission. According to John, Eric lifted him up so he could look over the junk pile in the middle of the room. John did not hear or see anyone at that point. Eric put John down, and the boys stood there without trying to take any of the items in the room. Next, John testified. A guy jumped up, and he says, What the hell are you doing here? And like, maybe one second passed, and he shot him. He didn't give him time to respond. Quagan was standing over a chair on the other side of the pile. John could see him once he stood up, but not while he had been seated. 
John denied that either he or Eric tried to go at the gun or Quagan. They did not climb on the pile or say anything back after hearing Quagan's words. There was no time for that. After Eric was shot, he fell backward and John started crying. Quagan told him to climb over the pile and put his hands on top of his head and John complied. Quagan told John to get the telephone and John did so. Quagan then called 911 and summoned an ambulance. Eric was pronounced dead at the scene. So a couple of things I want to touch on on this one is the fact that this is actually the court document from the appeal. So this is Stanley Quagan's uh, appeal. It's also based on the account of John, uh, obviously because Eric died. So there was no story from his side, um, but it's also told from Quagan's side. Um, and this is also an appeal to get you out of prison. So a lot of things sound a lot more, oh, I was just sitting here and these kids came after me and, and whatever. And I'm not saying that they they didn't look scary and big or whatever, but this is just one document, but it's really, really hard to find documents or historical information on this because this was 1997. And so even in finding this was kind of a struggle. I found like little snippets here and there from different articles, but this was the most detailed account um, and the most accurate in the sense that it was from a court. I couldn't find anything from the original. There's one thing that really sticks out to me when I read this is that there was a refrigerator full of beer and Coke, but they only took the Coke. As a 14 year old, I would have taken the beer. That's what I'm saying. Like if you're really a bad kid or not bad, but like if you're a rebellious kid and you have, you have access to a refrigerator full of booze and pop, you know, like the fact that they didn't take the beer, I think speaks volumes to their character. Like they literally could have taken whatever they wanted. Right. The other thing that sticks out to me too is that when it says John knew that it was wrong to steal and all that, the thing you have to keep in mind when we're reading this is that this is based on John's, you know, side of the story, his testimony, because Eric wasn't there. So Eric also knew it was not right to steal, but you're not going to hear him say that in a testimony because he's six feet underground. And and I might sound defensive, but I do get defensive about this. Because this was my cousin. I knew him very well. He was like my bigger brother. He was your brother, Amber. And I just know his character. You know, I, it's, it's like, I think of my two kids, right? I've got a 15 year old and I've got a a 12 year old. So we're very close in age here. So when Krista was 14, Kylie was 11. So, I mean, we're basically in the same age range as John and Eric. And I think about when COVID had first hit right? When COVID first hit, you couldn't really go anywhere public. You literally had the confines of your own house or you could go outside. And so uh, at one point, my Eric, not my dead cousin, but my Eric um, and I and the girls wanted to go out and explore, you know, on these trails and stuff. And we came across an abandoned house and there were like pieces of wood missing and there were like piles of junk and there's like a fireplace, like just standing in the middle of the clearing, like nothing around it, just a fireplace, you know? looked really cool would make for some really cool pictures but once again it's an abandoned property so who are you going to ask for permission to go take pictures right you're just going to go over there and take them so i think about that right and i thought about that in that moment i even said to my eric i said oh my god i'm really nervous like we have to be really quick we got to make sure no one lives there like because of what happened to my cousin but i also think about my two kids like just wanting to explore this really cool abandoned property and like this is really neat let's take some cool pictures And just that innocence and that innocence being taken away by an old man who is obviously a hoarder who lives in filth. I mean, when you're saying that you have to lift someone up over piles of junk to get a good view if someone lives there, that should be a telling sign right there that something's not right with this guy's head, right? They also, this was never talked about, 30 days before he killed Eric, he took his granddaughter, maybe it was his step-granddaughter, out horseback riding and raped her and never got charged with it. How so, do you know that? Where was that made public? It was talked about in court, I remember. Maybe They in, allowed that in court? They didn't say, like, relevance? I remember Myra talking about it, that um, he had done that. And then, like, a bunch of people, this I do know, a bunch of people had reached out to her, obviously, because the story was so public. 
and wrote letters to her. There was people that showed up at court, I remember, um, and had stories of run-ins with the Stanley Quagan and them being held at gunpoint by him. Also, maybe those are things like why I don't like this story because it makes Eric sound like the bad guy, but it doesn't talk about any of Quagan's past, anything that there was this I can't remember his name, but this had happened like the year before a year before Eric died. Again, this is Myra telling me this or whoever she was talking to and me being a nosy kid that Stanley Quagan tried to like hang him from a tree outside of his house. By no means do I believe that Stanley Quagan was this innocent poor old man. I mean, he was old. He was like 70 something years old. He was old, yeah. but he was by no means innocent. And he was not all there mentally. And that's the thing too. Like he said that his eyesight wasn't good. And that's why he didn't know if Eric was an adult or not. His eyesight was pretty damn good to hit Eric right in the square in the chest and the heart and end his life immediately. His shot was pretty damn good. I, I go back to, I have kids that are around that age. You know, we have in my backyard, I've got a lot of woods and the property is actually my neighbor's property behind me, but they just have tons of acreage of woods and land. Like it's scary to think this, but I can see like my kids going back there, like looking for like rocks or stones or critters or whatever. And someone saying like, you know, what the hell are you doing here? And just shooting them with like, what? But that's like basically what happened to Eric where these two little boys, because they were boys, Eric had turned 14 in August. So he was like 14 and a half. John's 10. They're walking around exploring. Yeah. I'm sorry. If I'm a kid and I stumble across like a big old pile of Barbies, like in the woods. uh, Yeah. I'm going to take the Barbies. But the fact that they heard the radio and decided to go in and ask for permission, that's what blows my mind. Had they not gone to ask for permission. Eric would still be alive. Eric would still be alive. The whole reason he was shot was because they were outside. They already had their stuff for their fort. They had heard the radio and were going to ask for permission. So it's just, it's so asinine because honestly, I wish that he just didn't ask for permission. I wish that Myra had raised us on her values that now she has instead of the ones that she had back then. Because I feel like Myra, you know, maybe had some values and that's why she taught us never to steal. Like, I just think like, God, like if my kids are out in our backyard, which is not technically our property, that guy just is like, you know, you're on my property, boom. Like no, no, like stop, wait to get a response. Like, oh, hey, we're just kids. And you know, even if Eric was a bigger teenager, John was yeah he was and he was small Jonathan was a small kid I mean there's no mistaking a a 10 year old boy for a a grown man I'm sorry like 10 year olds are small like boy 10 year old boys anyway like they haven't gone through puberty yet like they're not they're not big and John was very like no offense but he's kind of wimpy looking to me yeah like I always thought of him as kind of wimpy looking so I, I in reading that I wanted to clarify that I'm just reading it because I could sit here and say on March 16th, 1997, my cousin Eric was brutally murdered. Like, but the reality is I'm biased. You're biased. We love Eric. We, We know his character. We know that in our heart of hearts that he would not steal, that he would not do that. But I also think it's important to present the facts as they are presented to the public. This is what, this is what they are saying happened. This is like what the appeal was for Stanley Quiggin. So once again, it's kind of leaning more towards Quiggin's side anyway, but this is what is out there, but we're going to, we're going to read you that. And then we're going to share what our thoughts are. I just wish, and I will, maybe I'll try to find it. See if I can find, because I have found it before the transcript from the first court hearing. And maybe we'll post that at at a future time if I'm able to find it. And then, you know, people can kind of come up with their own ideas of what they think. Another thing I want to point out too, and you say, you say this, they were at church that morning. You know, I'm not saying churchgoers are saints because by all means, a lot of them do a lot more sin than the rest of us. But I mean, he was at church that morning and then they were exploring in the woods as a 14 year old. He could have been doing way worse things. That's what I'm saying. It's just like I was literally having sex when I was 14, like being promiscuous and like, here he is just trying to be a kid and enjoy his childhood. Okay, but let's be honest. Eric was probably having sex at 14. Probably. I remember if I found condoms in his room. Okay, so, I mean. Still, okay. 
He could have been, well, he, like you said, he could have taken the beer. He obviously wasn't like a partying kid or, you know, trying bad things like that because shit, when I was 14, I would have grabbed that beer. Forget all that Coke. My mom will buy me Coke. And later on in life, Kane, but <laughs> um, I would have grabbed that beer 100%. The other thing I want to say, too, is like as someone who knew him, his character, he was very outdoorsy. So I look a lot at my Eric and how my Eric is like my Eric is very outdoorsy, very explorative, very adventurous. And that's a lot how Eric, my cousin, was. I, you know, I remember when we went camping in Cape Costa and like he's like out in the wilderness and he's cutting down brush and stuff. I mean, he was building forts and camping and doing all that outdoorsy stuff with me when I was a kid. So it was not out of his character to go into the woods and build a fort. Like that was he not. Survival camp. He was, I remember as a child, I used to go with him to survival camp. It was this guy, Ray, I don't, or Roy, Roy, maybe his name was Roy. Roy or Ray, I don't know. But I remember going and like, he would stay out there. It was out in Osteen somewhere and he would stay out there for certain periods of time camping and this guy would teach them, the boys, like life survival skills and their families could come out, spend the day out there and learn stuff. And that's how I learned what a water moccasin was while we were walking in the water. You know what they did not teach at survival camp? How to survive getting shot within a yard range. No, they did, they did not teach that. They did not teach how to survive being murdered Yeah, by um, a crazy old man. But I think that that's important. For people to get both sides you know there's always three sides to the story his side her side and the truth well in this yeah. case there's four sides john's side quagan's side eric's side and the truth but yeah two of those well three of those we'll never get four of them we'll never get any of them they're all dead yeah they're all dead john's dead quagan's dead eric's dead everyone's dead so it, it, it this is something that i think they all took to the grave with them the reality anyway so no one wants to know what really happened in that house that day on March 16th, 1997. But I love him. I love him too. And I'll, you know, he's always my big brother. Do you remember that day and the story from your perspective or what you were told? Of course, I'll never forget that day. That's one of the most vivid days of my life. Um, I I can still close my eyes and picture and smell and what that day was um but something you'll never forget it was the probably the most you know traumatizing thing that I've ever gone through in my life I I wasn't a fan of that reading that you read because it really makes it sound like Eric was the bad a bad guy you know it kind of makes it sound like which granted no it wasn't right that he was in the house but that doesn't give every detail it doesn't tell you that, like, yes, it tells you the house was cluttered with stuff. It doesn't tell you that it was in an all industrial area. There were no homes over there. It's all industrial, all businesses. So anyways, I don't, I don't know. I don't like that, that version of it. And maybe that's, maybe that's because it's my brother and I don't want it to him to sound like the bad guy when he was murdered and he is not here to defend himself. But um, I, I remember I was at my, I stayed at my friend's house the night before and I will never forgive myself for this because Eric and I were fighting as brother and sister do. And uh, the last thing I ever said to Eric before I got out of the car was, I hate you and I hope you die. That will stick with me forever because, I mean, I was seven, eight. I don't remember if I was seven or eight, but that was the last thing I said to him and not thinking, you know, that anything would ever happen. So anyways, um, I spent the night at my friend's house. They, They ended up going to church. I didn't go to church with them, but then my mom picked me up after church and Eric and John had gone with John's dad and um, I went with my mom to her friend John's mom's house and I was you know playing with her John's little sister April we were playing outside I remember we were riding bikes around the driveway this was like later in and it was around dinner time because Myra was cooking spaghetti like I can still picture the spaghetti and her friend while April and I are outside, these three people walk up in like suits and, you know, we don't know what's going on. Like, who are these people? Why are they here? And they knocked on the door and I heard my mom's friend, John, John's mom screaming, no, no, no. And this is before Myra had come to the door because the, you know, the screen door was like, it was just a screen door. So I could hear what was going on in the house. And I don't, 
I just remember my mom breaking down and crying and there was so much confusion like I I didn't know what was going on until later on in the evening I I just it was just a confusing day and god even thinking back on it now it's like it's that's a really bad day for me and I try not to think about that day as much as it sucks like I, I always will remember Eric but I try not to think specifically about that day because I was so young you know and I never but I don't think at any age you're ready to experience the loss of a loved one, but I was so young and he was my best friend. The story that I was told was that the boy's dad was in his, um, this is what I was told as a child, that he was over there, he was in his warehouse doing some work. And that's why he let the boys go out and wander in, in the woods. Again, this was an all industrial area, no houses, no homes, all businesses, and Stanley Quaggan was a parade float builder and the boys had been walking in the woods and um, found a boat that they wanted to build a fort on. So they were, you know, found this junkyard, what they thought was a junkyard. They stumbled upon it. Stanley Quaggan had built parade floats for years and years for the, you know, for the city parades. And he had tons of cars and by all outside looking, you would think it is what is known as a junkyard where you go and buy scrap pieces for your car or what, you know, whatever. It did not look like a home. And then even more so once they stumbled inside, there was piles of debris everywhere. Some piles stacking as high as, you know, eight to 10 feet. And it just did not look like a home. Again, this is what I was told. Um, I wasn't there. But I will say that the first trial, so the, the thing that you read, I think was from his appeal. Um, the first trial, they allowed the... 911 tape to be heard in the courtroom. They allowed the jury to tour Stanley Quagan's property, which I, again, will never forget that day because guess who else got to tour the property? Me. So I got to see where my brother was murdered. They also showed pictures of Eric's dead body in the courtroom the first trial. The second trial, they had the defense attorney or somebody act out the 911 tape. So you couldn't hear the fear in this 10-year-old little boy's voice that his best friend had just been shot. You couldn't hear him crying, begging this 911 operator, please save my friend. And Stanley Quaggan saying, get this kid off my damn living room floor. I just shot him. You know, so it was, I think that definitely played a big part into it. And then they, as far as the property goes, the second trial when he appealed, the property had been all cleaned up. Because he had liens, he had tons of liens, like the county and city had been suing him over his property for a long time. And so when the second trial came around, the property was all cleaned up and they showed pictures of it cleaned up. At that time, John was older as well. So they didn't get, you know, this scared little kid. They got this teenage boy who at this point was going through tons of things mentally. I mean, he had been mentally hospitalized and I mean, it's understandable, but they got it. They... The jury the second time around, I feel like got a different experience and they didn't truly experience. Am I saying that Eric should have been on the property? I don't know. I wasn't there that day, but I just, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. A couple of things. One, if I remember correctly, and you can tell me if I'm wrong here, they ended up throwing out the 911 tape because the operator was consoling John. And she yeah. kept saying, it's okay, baby. It's okay, sweetie. You're okay. You're okay. Don't worry, honey. And they said that basically because she was consoling this scared 10-year-old little boy, that it was bias toward the um, victim, which, which would be- I also did not mention, and I, I didn't hear it mentioned in there. After he shot Eric, he held the gun to John's head and the gun jammed. So- Prior to him calling 911, he held John at gunpoint to his head and tried to pull the trigger and the gun jammed. And, and let's and let's just go back and refresh the audience's memory. This is a 14-year-old boy and a 10-year-old boy. Okay. I've got two stepdaughters, one's 15 and one's 12. So this is basically like my two girls going out and exploring. And getting shot. And so, you know, now, I mean, it hit home for me then because it was my cousin who was like my brother, but it really hits home for me now. The story I heard was basically what you said, but the thing that sticks out the most in my mind about the story of Eric dying 
is that Quagan held the gun to his chest, basically, and said, what the hell are you doing here? And shot. Did it give not, him a chance? Yeah, not giving him a chance to answer. Now, I try to look at things from both perspectives. I'm like you. Okay, the boys were on someone's property. Like, as a homeowner, if someone's on my property, like, mulling around, like, that, that is intimidating, especially Eric was a taller guy. He was pretty muscular for a 14-year-old. He wasn't, by any means, like, a beefcake, but... He was a toned, tall kid. You know, surfed and he, yeah. Played football, yeah. But he wasn't, he was not like a monster, like size-wise. I can see how that would be scary or intimidating to an older person. But then I look at my backyard, which is all woods. And if I see two people rummaging around in there, I'm going to first run inside and call it my Eric and be like, oh, there's two people outside. But I'm not going to go grab a gun and just shoot somebody. And that's what this guy did. I mean, whether Eric and John were supposed to be there or not, you don't just shoot somebody. I don't know. Could we look at it and say, okay, well, if someone's inside your house, that's not supposed to be there. Do you shoot them? I mean, that's a debate that goes, everyone debates that, right? I do stand behind that a little bit. You know, if somebody's in my house, I want to be able to protect myself. But there's factors that come into play. Like it wasn't in a residential area. It was all commercial. So one would think that this was also a commercial building, which typically commercial buildings are open to the public. From Quagan's perspective, I guess, like that's his home. Like, does he really feel that his home is a junkyard? He thinks that's home. He's fine living around the debris and the hoarding and the piles of junk. For Quagan, he feels like this is my home. Someone's intruding into my home. But to the kids, they're just exploring. Right. Do I think that Eric was stealing? No. I think that had someone not been there, they would have probably taken the stuff and built a fort. But I I, I think the fact is, I remember this part of the story too being told to me that they had heard like music or noise or something. And that's why they went over to like ask for permission. And I want to say like John had said, and I might be wrong. Once again, this was 26 years ago that John had said that Eric was the one that said, we need to go ask for permission. That's what I was told. And to me that I do believe that because as shitty of a person as Myra has always been, that is one thing that she taught us. You don't ever steal anything. You want it, you ask for it. The worst thing they can say is no. So I wholeheartedly believe that Eric intended to ask because that's what we were taught. Like, and still to this day, I teach my children that like my brother was murdered because of that, but I still stand by it. You know, I, what's the worst that they can say is no. And I, I truly believe in my heart that he, he intended on asking. As an adult, I can see both sides, right? It's hard to hear, to read this appeal and read the statement and not take it personal a little bit and feel like, no, like this is not, you know, Eric would never, you know, but I also can see Quagan's perspective. Like as an adult, I can see both sides from Quagan's perspective. Like someone's coming into your house, you reach for your gun, you reach for whatever it is that you need to protect yourself, but you also don't shoot someone point blank, right? Like you said, there's factors that go into that. You you don't just shoot somebody. You don't ask them, hey, what the hell are you doing here? And boom, give the, give the boy a chance to answer. You've got the gun. The kid doesn't have a gun. He flat out said that Eric didn't have a gun or a weapon of any sort. Right. And maybe Eric was a bigger teenager like a taller teenager, but John's 10 years old. What's done is done. But at the same time, it breaks my heart. Like I said, I've got two, two kids now that are roughly around the same age as what Eric and John were. I, I, like I said, when, when the COVID hit and we went exploring, I mean, I had all this fear because they're just innocently exploring this abandoned building. And all I can think of is, oh my God, this is exactly what Eric and John were doing. Not knowing that that was the last thing they would, you know. And another thing that I want to bring up in that, uh, the court transcript that you read, it says that Quagan said Eric was coming towards him. It was proven by the 
I don't know, the experts, the forensics, whoever does all the testing, that Eric was actually not coming towards him. He was backing away from him the way that he felt, the way that his body felt when he was down on the ground. There was It was not any way possible that he was having any forward inertia. Yeah. And that's what's so sucky about this transcript is that like, because we're in a day and an age where, you know, social media and the internet, it's like all around us back then it wasn't, it wasn't as prevalent as it is today. So finding any articles on Eric's murder, I even tried finding the actual picture. Cause I can still remember he had like an orange shirt on or something that they had in the newspaper. Remember his like picture that they put everywhere. Yeah. I couldn't even find that. Like it was really, really hard. I really had to like dive to like find the information. And there are some articles that are smaller, less informative that you can find. But this was the most descriptive I could find that related to the case. But once again, this is the appeal. Quagan ultimately got manslaughter, right? Like he didn't even get time. And then he got out within like three years, four years. Yeah. Yeah. The first trial he was charged with first degree murder because they said it was in you know, some sort of way planned because he heard the boys walking around. So he planned, he took, took time to go grab his gun and, you know, murder Eric. But then he, you know, I, the, the appeal, he appealed it and got off with self-defense because Eric was in his house. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, it's a tragedy. Whether Eric was supposed to be rummaging through someone's things or building a fort or, you know, being a kid, it's a tragedy because a life was lost and a young life was basically lost too with John, a younger life, I guess I should say, because John was never mentally the same after that. No, he Uh, wasn't. I mean, can you imagine at 10 years old seeing, they were like family to us you know, John, John and them. So it wasn't just like your best friend. It's like your brother almost just right in front of you. And then a gun held to your head. How, how are you supposed to be okay after that? Do you want to talk about how John was after and what transpired? I don't know legally what I can say. Cause it's not, I, I don't know. So I'm just going to choose my words carefully after that he was I from what I was told he was hospitalized mentally hospitalized numerous times and tried ending his life numerous times and was unsuccessful and then when he was I don't know his exact age so I could be wrong on this but I'm gonna say like 20 21 he started getting better and I think he got married and he was like living a normal life and then from what I heard he was drugged at a party And that's how he ultimately ended up dying. But John did not, John did not live a long life. He, he, he's also passed away. I mean, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with losing your best friend slash your big brother? Not just losing them, but seeing them get murdered in front of you. I still, I mean, I still cope with losing Eric and I wasn't even there. And I was the cousin, the funeral. It was the first funeral I'd ever been to. But holy shit, were there a lot of people there. Inside Edition was at the funeral. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about the people that... Everybody, like, there was literally a line to get in the door. It's just so surreal to me. You know, it's 26 years ago. Sometimes it still feels like yesterday, and sometimes it feels like it was a lifetime ago. Some days I can talk about it without shedding a tear, and other days I can't get my voice to stop cracking, and the tears just, you know, it's... It never gets easier. It just gets easier to deal with, you know, like it just gets easier to repress those feelings or suppress those feelings. Yeah. Like I get teary eyed. Like when you were talking about it earlier, I got a little teary eyed. And listen, I still have my days. I have my days where Eric's all I think about and I will just cry and cry and cry all day and look at pictures of Eric and look up because I've done the same thing, Googled and I've read that court transcript and I hate it. I hate it so much. I actually think there's a guy that wrote an article about that court transcript. I don't know if it's still on the internet. I searched it, but he was kind of going along with that transcript. And I remember I reached out to him when I was probably like 20 years old and told him like, Hey bud, like you have the wrong story. Like this is not what happened. I never heard back from him, but it's something that both you and I will deal with for the rest of our lives. It's never going to go, you know, I just wish I mean, I wish it wouldn't happened. You know, of course, like, I'm like, I just wish, but like, I'm like, I wish it wouldn't have happened. And as a, as a child, I remember like, it was, I couldn't believe that it happened. Like I 
was genuinely convinced that he was going to walk in the door from coming home from school one day. Like it, it wasn't until probably, I want to say it took me probably like two or three years to actually accept that he wasn't coming back somewhere in my mind, Eric was still alive and he was just playing a trick on me. He was just doing something. He's just teasing me because I'm his little sister and this is going to be the best prank he ever played on me. Even seeing him in his coffin, like I, it wasn't real to me. Yeah. He had an open casket for the wake, and in a way I'm kind of glad it was open casket because it did offer some sort of finality to it. The fact that like, as a kid, you know, I was 11, I was about to be 12 when this happened. As a kid, I had never got, like, I had never really experienced death. I never knew someone that had died and never anyone close to me. I think my grandma told me Lucille Ball had died like in the eighties or something like, and she told me like in the nineties and I like had a whole meltdown because I, I did not understand how to like deal with death. And when I found out Lucille Ball was dead, I was just like distraught. I'm talking like full-blown meltdown. My grandmother had to console me because Lucille Ball had died like 10 years prior. So I had no experience with it. And so as an 11-year-old, not having any experience with death, seeing my beloved cousin in the casket, not looking like himself, but definitely being him, kind of helped make it click a little bit for me that this actually did happen. But I also... I'm a very emotional person in general, but who I am emotionally today amplify that by like a hundred. And that's who I was as a kid. And so I think my emotions were so high that I also, as much as it offered that like finality of like, yes, this is real. I don't think my emotions really let my brain process it to this day. I almost feel like the whole thing was just like a made up story, right? Like I feel like, I made up this like fabrication that I had this cousin who was murdered that died and it's all just a big joke, but it's not, it's reality. It's just the way that it happened. I don't know if that makes any sense. It just goes along with everything else in our lives. Like you can't make this shit up. (laughs) Now that we're talking about it, like I'm getting emotional because like I try not to think, like I said, I try not to think about that particular day, like bringing back all those feelings and like, it's taken me a lot and I, I will never get over my brother being murdered or you know taken away from me ever 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 but opening up that trauma chest again is it's hard because it brings back very very real feelings like this you know that was my brother it was he was the closest person to me you know he was my best friend I looked up to him so much and like just like I hate it I hate that I have to live my life without him like I always wonder what would he have grown up to be and you know wishing that he was my kids were able to know him as their uncle like it that that's never going to get easier you know I just get better at hiding it and it's it sucks you know I, I wish like you said I just wish it never happened like I held so much hatred in my heart for the longest time towards Stanley Quaggan and I finally have forgiven him for taking Eric from me because I had to do that for myself. I had to, I had to forgive him in order for me to move on with Eric's death. And that sucks because do you want to forgive the man that took your best friend, your brother from you? No, but for my own mental health, I had to, you know, like act like everything's just okay. I don't know if you believe in these things or if anyone listening believes in these things, but I really really truly believe that Eric has been my guardian angel. And I think he's been your guardian angel. I think he's been, you know, echo autumn's lead, everyone's guardian angel, right? Like I really feel that, you know, that feeling that you've got someone looking out for you. I've never questioned who that someone was. Like I always felt like I in the felt- universe, <laughs> someone that someone looking out for me was always Eric. I've never questioned that it was Eric. Those times where I've been so down and distraught and I literally feel someone holding me and I just, in my heart, I know it's Eric. I know, I know it's Eric saying like, I've got you, you've got this. I know he's with me every single day. I just wish it was physically. It's so weird how this stuff happens. So Eric and I never talked on the phone, really. We would just wait till we got together with like a family reunion or whatever it might've been. But I remember I had called to talk to you, Amber. 
and it was in December. So he was murdered on March 16th, 1997. This was December of 1996. And I had called to talk to you and you weren't there. Eric had answered. You weren't there. And I don't know if Sal's, (laughs) I don't know, someone's house hanging out and him and I ended up talking. And that's when I asked him if he would like come to my birthday party and teach everyone how to surf and everything. Like that conversation that I had with him is the last memory I have with him. I remember walking around with my black cordless phone that actually was a landline, not a cell phone and walking around talking to him by mistake. Cause I was trying to talk to you and it's almost like the universe gave me that. I couldn't tell you everything we talked about. I, I just remember planning my birthday and him telling me that he's going to teach everyone how to surf and all this. And which, which is what makes the whole way I found out that he died even weirder. Right. So in December, I had this conversation with him about him coming to my birthday party. He's going to teach everyone how to surf. And I'm so excited because I'm going to feel really cool. But then on March 18th, I'm in school. And for the first time, mind you, I didn't find out he had died yet. I didn't know Eric was dead because my parents didn't tell me until two days later. So that Tuesday I'm in school and this is the day that I decide to tell Greg Simon and and all these people that my birthday party, my cousin Eric's going to be there and he's going to teach us all how to surf. And then I come home that day and my dad tells me about Eric dying. Tell me that's not weird, right? I don't talk to anyone between December and March about this birthday party plan that Eric and I have concocted together. But on the day that my dad tells me, that day prior to my dad telling me, I decide that's the day I'm going to tell the whole world that my birthday party is going to be awesome because my cousin Eric's going to be there. And weird, right? That is weird. I mean, I I believe that I believe in things like that, that things happen like it's not a coincidence. He was with you. And yeah, I think in a weird way it was. I don't know why. Like, I'm, I'm trying to like look back at it and be like, okay, so why would he like, you know, want me to tell people, but I feel like maybe like I was feeling his presence extra hard. There's days when like my Eric, not my cousin, but my, my, my man friend, Eric, when I'll be thinking of him, I'll be like, man, I haven't heard from that jerk all day. Where the heck has he been? Then all of a sudden I'll get a text. It's almost like that energy is there. I'm wondering if on the day that I found out that he was like there with me that energy was there with me and that's why it sparked my mind to say hey everyone guess what because I didn't know you know that he was gone it sounds kooky I know but I mean our whole lives sound kooky so it would be kooky if it didn't sound kooky (laughs) you know it's sad and people always ask because I just nonchalantly talk about you know I'll just oh you know my, my older brother you know or mention it or people are always like well what happened what happened and now at least you know the story is out there it was out there before inside edition was at the funeral we were on montel williams geraldo we were it was a really big story at the time it was it was all over the place like it was that times big like right now the the murdoch murder or the murdoch murders are going on whatever like this was the the big crime of that time it was everywhere the other thing is it was such a big prominent story that was all over Florida. It wasn't just in Deltona Deland. It was all over Florida and it was going nationwide because like you said, Montel, Inside Edition, all these people were telling the story as well and sharing the story, you know, nationwide. I actually missed school for a little bit of time because of that. So I had gone to do the funeral and all those things. And when I came back, I explained to the kids in my class why I was gone they didn't believe me. They called me a liar. They told me that I was lying, that that wasn't really my cousin. And I got a lot of shit for it in school because they said that I was just making up this elaborate story that this whole thing that everyone had been seen on the news and everything that he was related to me. It's crazy. Kids are assholes. I mean, I didn't get that obviously because people knew. People knew that I was the little sister. My dad actually talks about this a lot. Like when you read the news articles and stuff, because I have news clippings from then my dad brought up a good point like everyone was so concerned with how Myra was dealing with it but nobody really like checked on me after it happened you know and I think that that's why I'm so emotionally dependent 
everyone was so concerned. Like, I understand a mother losing her son, but like, I was a child that lost, like, in this tragic way. It wasn't just like, as you know, people, there was like re- news reporters at our house all the time. Like, this was a lot for a, a kid, you know, to be going through on top of losing my brother. Because I do feel like Myra wanted to capitalize on it. I feel like it was just another thing that was you gaining know, her attention her attention and that makes me sad you know like that's why and that's not to downplay I I will say that's not to downplay her grief because she was most certainly grief stricken when this happened but you are absolutely you hit the nail on the head there because she certainly thrived on the attention that this brought her that's not to say that she was not sad and distraught by losing her child but I mean Myra's Myra it's like call a spade a spade right you know, this episode was a little different because you and I are pretty much the only ones talking because, you know, we know the most. Well, we know we knew Eric. Yeah. Eric did a little bit, but she didn't know him. You know, and going through all this and reading the transcript and whatnot, like this is just us recalling our memories. But if there's one thing that I want to say you know, whether it was right or wrong for him to be there or whatever, is that I never want anyone to look at him like he was a bad person. I, with a hundred percent, hundred percent, hundred percent, hundred percent of my being, do not believe that he was ill-willed or doing like anything malicious or with malicious intent in getting that stuff for the fort that day. I knew him. I was a kid, but I knew him and I think kids are pretty perceptive and he was a good human. And so I think in telling his story and what happened to him, I don't want anyone, but I especially don't want Echo or Autumn to ever feel that Eric was doing something wrong. He might've been doing something wrong by mistake, but it was never purposefully Purposely. Like he was a teenager. I mean, who didn't make mistakes as a teenager? So, you know, should he have been where he was? No. But when I was a teenager was, listen, at least he was running around in the woods as a teenager trying to build a fort. Okay. (laughs) And not sitting and not sitting on his phone, staring at a screen for 12 hours a day. Yeah. So let me ask you this um, before we get the other girls in on uh, the conversation. If there is one thing that you could say to Eric today. Like if he just magically appeared in front of you, but you only get to say one thing, not like one word, but like one thing, what would you say? Come back. I love you. I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready to get that deeply emotional because I feel like I don't know. I've often thought about that. I've often thought about when, you know, if my dumbass makes it to heaven, um, what I will say to him when I see him for the first time. And it, it would definitely involve come back. I love you. Definitely. Do you know what I would say? Let's go surfing, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) You owe me a surf lesson, motherfucker. No. Um, I would say I always knew it was you. Thank you. Because I'm telling you, I know without a doubt in my mind that he has been my guardian angel this whole life. He has been the one looking out for me. I know it sounds hokey, but I feel his presence when I need it the most. I It's that feeling that there's someone looking out for you. And I mean, just look at our childhood. I know that he was there. And that's why what happened with Myra didn't ever become fatal or anything. Because there was times when I feared it would. But I always felt Eric's presence with me. And I know that's why I was ultimately kept safe. I feel like I always knew it was him. I still, to this day, I know when it's him. I think I mentioned the butterflies. Anytime I see a butterfly now, I think it's him. But like just the energy or like there's so many things that I did or have done that I feel like there's like, I don't know how the hell like I am still living from like just stupid mistakes that I did or just idiot decisions I've made or how I haven't gotten myself into more trouble. Like when, especially my early twenties, like now I'm kind of old and boring, but um. I feel that he has been my guardian angel. And I think in that too, to get real like 
mushy. <laughs> Everyone that has passed that I've been close to, I feel like just joins his energy and they are all together, like looking after me together. I lost my good friend, Jessica. I lost my grandmother. I lost my grandfather and I lost my ex-husband's stepfather, who was an amazing man. And I feel like that's some solace in losing people. I feel like they're always around, even in their absence. Yeah. I miss him. Yeah, definitely. I, I miss him every day. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think about him. And because that's... I want to get a tattoo to memorialize him, but like... I don't know what I want to get and I want it to be perfect, but I'm like, I keep like getting other tattoos and I need to like figure out what I want to get for him, but I just don't know. There's so many ideas. So one day get a butterfly like me, get a tramp stamp. I have a tramp stamp already. Oh. I'm not going to get a tramp stamp to memorialize my dead brother. <laughs> Why not? I did. <laughs> Well, I actually, my, the story behind my tattoo, like I, I love butterflies. I used to talk to butterflies because of Eric and like my room was actually done in butterflies at one point, but it's also not necessarily just Eric. It's also because I had read somewhere that Drew Barrymore liked butterflies and had a butterfly tattoo, I think. So I got a butterfly tattoo. I don't know. I, I was a weird kid. Well, um, uh, a meaningful tramp stamp. Mine's just a heart with a tribal around it. Like my first, like I was like 18. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to get a tramp stamp. That's what tramp I got on my 18th birthday was a tramp stamp. The tribal butterfly tattoo tramp stamp. Oh, mine's <laughs> the tribal. I picked it off the wall. So is mine. It's the only <laughs> tattoo I have that I did not draw myself or at least have some like influence in the like artwork of. Well, anyway, with that being said, now we open it up, I think, to Autumn and Echo. I think if you guys, like, have any questions for Amber and I, now is the time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Wicked Awesome Sisters podcast and that it gave you a sneak peek into our Wicked Awesome Sisterhood. Next week, we'll pick up right where we left off. To stay in the loop and catch us when our next episode drops, you can subscribe to this channel. For our family tree diagram and more fun facts and photos, you can follow us on Instagram at Wicked Awesome Sisters. Till next time, stay wicked. Wicked awesome, that is.